0: Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to another episode of the Just Live Performance Podcast. Uh, We're here on episode 54 and Today, I'm doing part two of a recent series of questions that were asked for me for uh, the Just Live Performance podcast and uh, put a, put out the call on social media every time I'm either kind of between guests or just want to mix it up and just kind of go uh, free wheel it at the microphone uh, by myself. So we got uh, so many questions last time and a combination of that and me being a little bit long-winded at times that I couldn't get to nearly everything that People were asking, uh, but I, I wanted to kind of make sure I finished up uh, and and address all the questions and the really good ones. I mean, there were some good ones uh, for the last Q and A we did, but there were some really great ones and ones that I was really hoping to answer. And so I wanted to make sure I got to those. So uh, for episode fifty four today, we're gonna just have me and I'm gonna be answering questions in the realms of mostly vertical jump. That does seem to be things that people tend to ask me. Speed. Speed training, uh, as well as a little bit of a periodization ideal. So always cool to it's always cool to answer those and think about that type of thing. So uh, let's get on to it. Uh, first one was NK Athletic Performance, and that's uh, first question. There's a few. Uh, a lot of people ask me more than one. It's always like, what about this and this and this. Um, but that's a good thing. I don't. I never mind. Uh, I never am. Um, annoyed by people who uh, want to know several things actually it's great to have all these these questions so i really appreciate that uh but the first uh, question here was in your opinion what are the worst speed training dogmas or myths that need busting so uh there's a lot of them out there um it's it's kind of a a wide question i i would say in at this point i am now as a coach i don't i try to spend as much time as possible just learning from people I know who are really, really good. And I don't spend a lot of time around, um, I guess you could say coaches that, um, (laughs) uh, it's been a while at least since I I kind of sifted through that vast universe of training and, and, but you know, you, you go to track meets and you, you hear things that coaches say, and you kind of, you've been through different cues and different systems and, and different training ideas. And, Uh, so I'm going to keep this one actually more, and maybe I've alluded to it in the way I've already spoken about the question, but more just from a technical standpoint than maybe training. I think that it's, um, I mean, we all know if you want to get fast, you have to train fast and not do, you know, not do aerobic training all the time and all that, that whole business. Um, so I'm going to stick more biomechanically. Um, the, the main thing that irritates me that I see, I see a lot of people coaching this and I think the people who do it were never track and field sprinters, or were never track sprinters who thought about how they ran. But that's um, to have your arms at 90 degrees the whole time you're running, straight front to back. Um, I just I don't like that very much. It's so it's very robotic. Uh, it's very it disrespects the triplanar nature of movement, the rotational uh, nature of movement. And you lose power. You, you have a ton of like antagonist fighting yourself uh, type uh, type muscle uh, action. And also by keeping the arm at 90, you aren't you don't um, you can't put as much force down into the ground. It's very like high and tight. And that type of thing works for like 400 meter distances on uh, maybe some 200 races. But if you want to run really fast and powerfully, it's usually not like that. Um, another one I don't like is just, like knees up, you know, knees up and sprinting. We've got to get the thigh to parallel and maybe uh, um, not even so much in um, like actual sprint running. I, I think that coaches will say that and realize quickly it doesn't work <laughs> because to, to hit that position, there's a lot of compensations that have to happen for many athletes, uh, not all. But um, just like all drill work too, like every drill, getting your <laughs> thigh up to parallel, even if it doesn't match the hip projection and hip rhythm of the drill and uh there's obviously true in speed training but i see it a lot in like high jump training too and like uh just especially like uh at, like younger female jumpers who the coach told them to drive their knee and you watch these athletes jump and they're actually halfway decent at it but the rhythm is all wrong like before the, the swing hit projects at all you get that swing knee that's already up and, and there's no pop like they lose just that real uh, pop off the ground by that quick rhythmic uh, takeoff and the hips being on the right rhythm. So uh, yeah, I'm not a big uh, knees up fan. Um, I mean, for fast sprinters, those knees get fairly high, but there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, so uh, further question from uh, NK athletic performances, what do you see athletes do on Instagram that uh, makes you cringe the most? Uh, so uh, I got to say, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time on Instagram uh, for two reasons. Uh, one is that well, I installed this Freedom app that limits my time on social media, anyways, and I, I do leave myself like a window to check Instagram and things and the accounts I like and think are interesting. But even that, somehow, the the app is just completely messed up, like my Instagram and Twitter on my phone. And even if I wanted to look at it, I I really have a hard time. Like I, even if I'm just trying to kill time, I, I like it just doesn't load. So which is fine. I There's a lot of other good things I can spend my time on. And if I really want to look at someone's account, I can open it up on my computer. Um, but another uh, kind of thing with Instagram is I don't, I don't just kind of scroll through randomly a lot of um, accounts. I just I, there's a few people I like to, to check out their stuff. And, and I, I just try to, you know, filter what I see being being coaches I really respect and think are doing things well. Um, but occasionally you do kind of see stuff um, that is, I guess, cringeworthy. Uh, and the, the thing that's probably the most stuck in my memories is pretty much any time you see, uh, and this isn't just Instagram, but any time you see someone doing like, uh, and this is always in context of a coach bragging, <laughs> a coach like, oh, look how much this athlete lifted. It's like a wonder at max effort by an athlete. Maybe it's a hex bar deadlift, maybe it's a squat, and the form is just garbage, the posture is terrible, um, the levers are just like, you know, the athlete is just like, everything is caving in, but, you know, they're going to get that weight. And, um, you know, maybe there's an emotional component to it, but from movement paradigms, it's setting our profession backwards. Uh, I mean, it's good to be strong, don't get me wrong. I am um, a strength coach by trade, uh, as well as obviously a track coach, movement coach. But just the idea of move bar from A to B above all else, uh, it it sets athletes backwards. It lowers performance ceilings, and it's it's just not good practice. Again, it's good to be strong. You, in many cases, you must get stronger to perform better. Um, but not that way. So, and top of it too, it's just like the idea of bragging, oh, my athlete lifted this and, and, you know, and to a degree, yeah, you know, you have to do as a profession, what pays the check. Um, but does that mean your athlete's going to be better? Uh, does it also go in sync with whatever other responsibilities the athlete has and their own sporting demands? And I think those are all questions that should be asked, but anyways, that's what bugs me. Uh, so that's uh, that's uh, my answer to that. Um, another follow-up question there, are, are most athletes successful in spite of their training? So the idea is, are most at good athletes would see freaks and you could throw any training at them and they would be good no matter what. Um, uh, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of good coaches out there. I I mean, there's there's really good coaches and a lot of them. And yeah, there's athletes that are successful despite poor coaching, I guess you could say. Um, and maybe, a, maybe a different way to frame that question is not like, can an athlete be successful with bad coaching, but maybe like how long are they going to be successful with that bad coaching? And maybe there's a couple ways to look at that. One might be, um, could the athlete be better in, in someone else's hands? And I think in those cases, it's, um, uh, maybe biomechanical, like a coach who is maybe putting too high of priorities on, Special strength and maximal strength and other things besides having a really intimate knowledge of the movement skills required by that athlete's sport, and you know, sub, uh, special strength and and max strength and all that stuff is is good. It's going to get athletes good and better, but uh, to a degree, at the very highest levels, it does paint over uh, some very valuable movement paradigms. So, uh, number one, and I realize this more and more as I coach, is you have to know the movements. Of your sport you coach inside and out and uh, and that's number one and then uh, with the intensity like you see this a lot in, like high school athletes athletes who were really good when they were younger and they just did like insane uh, like cross country is a good one you know athletes who did like 100 mile weeks in high school and and they were doing all this high mileage and it's like uh, i've had guests on i think it was Joseph johnson who's kind of um, spread this idea out through the the great coaches he's worked with but. The idea of once you go really high intensity in something, it's hard to go back, or you can't go back. And so, if you use it up early, where are you going to go? And then if you keep going to the well, uh, you're probably going to get hurt. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, those are just a couple ideas there, just food for thought. I'm, I'm not really, um, I'm always one. I want to, I want to praise coaches for for work they do with athletes. You know, I want to be, um, I want to be, always want to be optimistic, and I don't like to be a hater, but I, just kind of like I want to speak more on principles there than. And like, oh, yeah, this person and that person. And, and so uh, that's my answer with that question. And uh, so then we'll go uh, to Over the Hill Dunker, at Andy Nicholson. So thanks for the uh, question, Andy, But optimal body fat for maximizing vertical jump. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I guess just a general. Um, there's a lot of ways you could go with this. I, I like to keep it simple. I like Charles Poliquin's, uh pair like a visual of just having well maybe inappropriate for the podcast but very thin let's just say very thin skin on your abs as uh, a means of i think i believe that's if you're below 10 percent. and yeah if you want to optimize your power to weight yeah probably below 10 uh i think i've heard olympic like high jumpers are five to six percent that's really low though i mean that is ripped that is straight ripped and it also takes a lot of effort to get to those lower levels. the the effort that might almost be like not worth it in a, in the sense of like the stress it puts on you and your daily life and your daily responsibilities. And uh, if you're a uh, parent and have a job and have all these other things going on, uh, to get down there, uh, you know, you just want to find a happy medium. Find efficient ways to get to below 10. You just eat super clean, uh, and just find ways to reduce stress and therefore cortisol and obviously train smart do uh, low impact circuit training not involving jumping muscles all that good stuff so uh, that's what I got to say there great question uh what they say <laughs> fat doesn't fly I guess is, is the saying isn't it so yeah you got to be got to be lean uh, to get up there you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster okay uh, next question to from uh, Godfrey uh, Godfrey got hops Godfrey I Again, I you asked I you asked a question last time or on the first one, and I always am afraid I will mispronounce your name, but we'll just say uh, Godfrey. Thank you for the question. I always appreciate your questions, both on the podcast and uh, just on general messages. So uh, Godfrey asked uh, last few months, my single leg jump has been decreasing. Every uh, time I'd have a dunk session, I can barely dunk off one, but I'm easily dunking off two. So uh, decreasing one leg jump, two legs are good jumping. Uh, so he posted a recent video of him doing squats and a deadlift. He, someone said he was very quad dominant, has a weak posterior chain. And he also says that he lost speed. How can I get my single leg vertical back? Well, um, single leg vertical is probably, and I've mentioned this before in many ways, it's more tied or more closely linked to your maximal, uh, top end running speed and technique ability to harness your posterior chain than it is a lift one rep max. Just because the the former uh, max flight sprinting, it's, it's so many things that single leg jumping is just with different shin angles. So uh, where squatting is bilateral and the shin angles are way, way, way far away. And if you're very quad dominant, you're probably just revving up, well I don't know if you call it a dysfunction, but you're revving up the single leg jump dysfunction. Single leg jumping is very much about operating with shin angles that are either negative or close to perpendicular to the ground, while squatting is operating with shin angles that are a little bit forward, which is good for two leg jumping. I mean, of course, unless you decide to squat with your shins perpendicular to sit your butt way back, but then all you're going to do is just build up your spinal erectors, and that can cause a whole different set of problems. So, um, and chances are, if you're being called out for being quad dominant, you're probably not squatting that way. So, uh... I mean, there's a lot of ways to get it back. Just how about stop squatting? That's a good one. I always found that that was kind of true for me. Once I kind of calmed down the deep squats, I've always felt like my single leg vertical would come around, and sometimes it was a good thing. You get a little bit of uh, deep squatting just for general muscular development and stop it, and you're going to jump higher. Uh, Deadlifts, yeah, they're fine. Do some deadlifts. Do some wide stance uh, sumo deadlifts and focus me a little bit more on bar speed. Focus more on sprinting. Just spend your time dunking. You know, take care of your... Do some uh, roller and, and basic soft uh, self-myofascial release on like your uh, anterior chain stuff a little bit. Get that to detonify, calm down, and you'll be fine before you know it. I'm sure they'll come back around for you. Uh, okay. Um, now, of course, too, that was in context of maybe needing a little bit more history, but I think those are good general things. Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Let's just say the... Um, (laughs) the person who asked is spelled T-E-A-T-E-A-A-R-T okay Uh, I'm nearly 46 years old I have a standing vertical of 28 inches I can touch the rim from a standing jump but it doesn't seem to get much higher off of a running jump 2 feet or 1 so standing vertical decent, running doesn't make it any better Uh, is it possible for someone my age to keep improving and what type of training intensity is best? so uh, two things here. Well first, if you aren't any better off a of run than standing, then you can definitely improve because uh, it's either it's a couple things that are holding you back, probably a combination of which, maybe one or the other more. I haven't seen you jump, but I can tell you it's either a uh, technique, okay? So and I guarantee that is part of it. Uh, the ability to jump off of the run, uh, it quite requires that you have some mastery, over negative shin angles i just mentioned that a negative shin angle is basically uh if your shin if you're just standing up upright and your shin is perpendicular to the ground that's uh you know ne- neutral <laughs> if you were to squat and your knee went forward that would be positive and if you i guess if you were to lean against the wall behind you and your shin went backwards well that would be negative so jumping off a run requires some mastery of those angles and people who have uh, big time weight room movements and abilities like squatting uh, that's all positive shin angles that doesn't mean that you're automatically going to be great off a run and being good off a run also requires a little bit of triplanar uh, competence so uh, you have to be good rotationally at least decent at it rotationally so anyways uh just technical technically you can get better there's a lot of things you can do there that might go beyond the scope of this podcast but um you can definitely uh, get better there and I'll, i'll just give you a few things it's just simple simple stuff work on skipping skipping and galloping rhythms uh just play around with with quick rhythms drawn out rhythms uh, gallop is so underrated. I've been using it with so many of my track athletes and it's a great way. It's a great diagnostic. Like if a kid has trouble jumping off the run, ha- have them gallop and I can usually see what the problem is right then and there. And then you have a very uh, rapid self-feedback mechanism, a rhythmic movement that you can help, help them with to, to get them a little bit better. So just some simple stuff there. And I use a lot of stuff with dots and, and hurdles and various things. With other, uh, with other for improving jumping off the run for double leg and, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of ways to do it. So um, that play around with those and and see if that can get you a little bit better um, conserving some momentum and directing it upwards, uh, and then the next thing is intensity. Well, being uh, 46, just the big thing is, you can do the intensity you can tolerate safely without getting hurt. You just have to watch the volume. Uh, older athletes just have to go lower volume. So keep that in mind. All right, next question. Actually, lots of next questions from power athletics gym training so uh let's let's get started with these there's a lot of them but they're all really good uh next question uh so how do you progress standard anti-rotation exercises like palaf press again uh the answer is uh, i don't (laughs) uh it's it's funny like my kind of my journey i i started out as um a track coach uh who also uh, did strength and conditioning um full-time track coach and then strength coach for the sports of a small school and even in my my upbringing as a strength coach i didn't i really like and this is just kind of my personality too but i've always avoided the mainstream stuff like i just it's kind of like the more people who do it like kind of like the fms like the more people who do it the less i want anything to do with it uh and maybe it's good sometimes maybe it's bad Um, but it's funny, like I, I, so I've seen like, you know, coaches doing anti-rotation, anti-flexion, and you hear it in some ways, it it sounds good. Like you want to be, have a strong, stable core and you don't want to, um, be, uh, you don't want external forces to be, you know, wobbling you all over the place. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of really good athletes Who have never done any of that stuff (laughs) formally like pallet pressing and chops and all this stuff and and i do chops and stuff um but i've never been like just hyper sold on i never wanted to do something just because someone else do it did it i always had to know well what is this really doing Um, and kind of one of the i guess what i'm trying to say is I, i like simple stuff i like i like simple movements that kind of act as a triplanar screen and what I mean by that is, uh, let's just take uh, one of my favorite core exercises, probably the favorite core exercise I have because it has so many implications, is just a simple crawl. And when you watch an athlete crawl, you see a lot of, lot of stuff going on. You can tell a lot about an athlete's gait, standing upright by watching them crawl, as well as how they're going to rotate and produce force. And a lot of what you can tell is based off of uh, watching their torso roll from side to side. Do their sh- uh, hips shift side to side? In the frontal plane, uh, you can see a lot of what's going on there. And then there's also corrections you can do within the scope of crawling. Um, and uh, it was even even at a recent uh, PRI uh, postural restoration seminar I went to, they were they were hating on uh, all the anti anti rotation this and that. I, I think it's just when people do stuff blindly and expect it to give results. Um, and so I, I think that like if an athlete had a problem like crawling and they were really unstable. Then there there would probably be like I would maybe try to regress the whole movement um, down to maybe some chops and then say okay here's what you were here's what you were not accomplishing or maybe we could even go a side plank with a band or something like that or a rotational side plank but I like to stick with with like big movements that there's a lot to watch and that are really simple um, I'm not really up on all my Correctives and physical therapy type esque type stuff to the point where I'm really getting into it. Because unless, again, unless I really know why I'm doing something, I'm not just gonna copy it. Uh okay, so what are some advanced core exercises you are using and why do you use them? Uh well yeah, so crawling is one, uh big time one. I like to carry things and I like to have athletes roll. And I like hanging stuff. Um I, I'm a big time uh, well, I enjoy rock climbing. I haven't for a while because I'm trying to finish a book. And uh, also have a, a one-year-old, and so between family time and book time, um, there's not a lot of extra time to go rock climbing. But basically, crawling, climbing, rolling, carrying things—you're going to hit your core from a very functional perspective, uh, and you're going to—you also get a huge triplanar assessment through all that stuff. Rolling is a big one that I've—I've I've started to use a lot recently. Uh, just, uh, having an athlete lay out on the ground and just doing uh, full length log rolls, keeping their hands and feet off the ground. will tell you a lot about that athlete's functional ability. Uh, just doing that recently with like water polo players, the guys who are the, the strongest in the pool are good at rolling and keeping their hands and feet off the ground. They do it really well. They're in control of their trunk. And, uh, that's not something you're going to improve by just putting people on their back and just doing the. All the ab rip type stuff. I mean, it's easy to hate on cosmetic abs, but I don't, I just don't think it does that much. And even, <clears throat> even a lot of, I mean, if there's just not much explanation or like, you know, what does this improve? I, I think it's hard to really buy in on various core exercises. So I, I tend to, I also like reflexive stuff. Like I like uh, getting a med ball on a rope and like putting your back on the wall and just doing a lot of like hits back and forth. Uh, stuff that makes your abs like reflex and react and that isn't just you know hit this position let's let's wait till this hurts or or whatnot you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster okay uh next question from the same uh, power athletics Uh, what are your favorite bosch exercises and how do you implement them Uh, it's a good question yeah i have um i have uh bosch books i have running and i also have his recent, uh, strength training, uh, strength training book, uh, uh, strength training and coordination, which was really good, man. That was, I I think I read and I almost highlighted the whole thing in the course of two or three months. But, um, to be honest, I, it's funny. I've, I'm not a real, I'm not a real fancy guy in the weight room. I like simple stuff, but I like the complexity behind something that's simple. I mean, even in a deadlift, how you align your what part your what part of your foot you put pressure into uh and then how do you align your stance and what muscles are facilitated and inhibited because of the width of your stance uh and what's the coordination requirement of the exercise and how does the coordination jive with your other primary sport movement I mean that's the stuff i care about a little bit more um and and it's just rung more and more true to me the more i uh the longer i coach just getting a getting a good overload and then being really simple through things so Uh, maybe I'll uh, so in terms of uh, weight room stuff uh, I mean I've done single leg cleans Uh, I actually like them more for something like high jump than sprinting Uh, and the reason why is just uh, uh, well one there's no like I mean there's horizontal velocity when you high jump no doubt but kind of I just look at things in terms of what direction is the shin projecting force uh, and, and then you look at that and you compare it to like high jump or long jump or sprinting, and I think high jump is probably like the closest one. And I've actually used it when I've been hurt with single leg cleans. And I actually felt like it was, I felt like it offered me a little bit. I thought it was cool, um, but I don't, I don't know if I see it as much for um, sprinting and uh, other other types of things. Um, but again, I mean, uh, Franz Bosch books have been. Uh, really instrumental and helpful for me. They they have such amazing concepts in motor learning, really cool stuff. Uh, it makes me really think about everything I do in a different way. I will say some of the sprint drills, like uh, I, I've, uh, you know, there was some Bosch sprint drills that I really like. And when I first uh, got to Cal, uh, the decathlon coach who was there at the time was showing me some of the movements and uh, like just like switching from one type of sprint, Uh, sprint drill to the other as you go through kind of a course and well one of them he called moose runs and I I don't know if I've seen this on the Bosch DVD or anything but he said it was a Franz Bosch drill and I really liked it It was basically put your hands behind your head and you keep your hips square but you tilt your your head or your elbows to one side say to your right and then you perform to do like a dribble or a high knee with the hips square and then you when you say hit five meters you switch over to the other side so you go to like the left uh, and then you, you keep performing that dribbling or high knee action or, or whatever you're doing there. Um, and I really like that. I think that, that uh, has a lot of good, uh, It's one, it's a good screen because like people who have really rigid spines are going to be terrible at that. <laughs> so you can kind of start to give them something to shoot for and you can, you can assess and you can kind of use your bag of tricks in improving their spinal variability. Uh, but then also I think it kind of does hone in on one side of that trunk uh, feeding into the pelvic muscles at a time, maybe as a special strength, if you will. I like that one. I, I, I use that a lot. And then, uh, the other one, and now this drill has been around for a while. It was, uh, I think it was Rainer Ryder who had told me that, that there was coaches doing this back in the sixties. And although for some reason, I think it's been like, Recently, it's been more like credited to uh, uh Veron Gambetta, uh, uh, Franz Bosch, v- Gary Winkler, or maybe Gary Winkler. Sorry, not I think it was Veron Gambetta who was talking about this. And it was he said it was either Franz Bosch or Gary Winkler who was doing this maybe back in the 80s or 90s. But that, um, uh, Chris corpus calls them boom booms so a switch, a rapid switching drills, and really dr- engaging that crossed extensor reflex. Um, I like that one too. I think that has a lot to offer, and then you can obviously use different like hand positions uh, to increase the demand of various things. You could uh, put a band on the athlete's hands, like, like extend it over a head to try to put a different demand on the trunk. You could put a little like weight, like carry a little um, like a tire based weight, uh, light like, like 10 to 20 pounds or on the shoulders and do that. There's so many ways you can do it. And it just teaches really good things. It's self-limiting. So you basically, AKA you can't mess it up that much. And it allows you to really see what athletes have, in that reflexive, uh, cross sensor power and strength. So I do really like those. Um, I think there is something too to the uh, like the water bag and those types of things, the dynamic core reflexive uh, demand. I just haven't gotten that much into it. I haven't had the opportunity to test it out, and try it. The only thing that I've really been able to test and try and kind of put my two cents forth on is single leg, uh, the single leg Olympic lifting. Uh, okay. So, uh, what is your favorite, next question, what is your favorite vision assessment that everybody can implement with ease, and how to use the data to guide vision training? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm gonna go for my third one, I don't know, I don't know, I don't have one. I have a couple of vision things I do. I'll tell you what, if you're gonna ask vision questions, there's um, there are better guys to ask than me, like Jeff Moyer is, is really good at vision and that stuff, I get a lot from him. And then uh, slow the game down. Doctor Harrison, there, the stuff they're doing, just check that out. And and the thing is, is uh, in terms of what I've done, I mean, the things I use for vision are very rudimentary. It's like Brock strings and some of the Z Health drills, like like having an athlete uh, follow uh, the tip of a pencil with their eyes in various thing, various um, positions or, or directions, and looking for kind of gappings and how the eye follows it and tracks it, or or throwing tennis balls at an athlete with one eye closed or the other. But at the end, you you need a system and you need like a skill to be developed over time. And it, it just seems like the stuff they're doing at Slow the Game Now is really good. Again, I know Jeff Moyer is getting a lot out of it. I haven't used it yet, but I would really hope to at some point. Now, that's kind of like on my to-do list, especially for a sport like tennis. So that's all I really have for that one. Uh, moving forward, and same same person asking the question, Power Athletics Gym Training. Uh, question: You have a weight room strong athlete, and you recognize a force transmission deficit in the ankle and foot muscles. What assessment do you use to see if somebody is lacking force production or force transmission? Okay, uh, so uh, for me, it's mostly just like the eye test. I'm I'm not. Uh, if you've been listening to me like talk or write for a long time, I'm I I'm kind of not a big like like checklist guy. I'm I'm a very this is just the way I'm wired. Is I'm kind of an intuition-based coach, and for a lot of things I do, I have been kind of the eye test. So for the first, uh, the first thing I use is the eye test, and what I'm looking for for force transmission is I'm looking at Achilles tendon lengths throughout basic drills, jumping, skipping, bounding, all that stuff. Uh, so how an athlete like sets up their penultimate to jump, what is the Achilles doing, and even in a jump, how. How, at what point are the athlete's heels coming off the ground in like a double leg jump? What uh, length are the Achilles kind of preset at? And if athletes have really like kind of loose floppy Achilles, they have, they're really heel heavy, uh, I know that they need a lot of uh, work on the feet and getting that uh, calf and Achilles complex a little bit um, more stiff and resilient. And so it's usually multifactorial. Um, but uh, and kind of what I'm going to do, uh, regardless, so if you need, if you really need stiffness stuff, or I mean, if you don't, it's just a good practice to take care of your feet. So, some basic um, principles that I like are just, uh, and and the question was given in, in terms of what do you what do you use to correct in terms of activation exercises, technique, etc. Uh, the easiest way is just doing barefoot training and do it in a variety of sensory environments. So, uh, it's funny, it makes me. I I was thinking about a lot about this uh, like one or two weeks ago and just like when you're a kid like think about when you're a kid and and i know when i was say 10 11 12 in the summer um we'd, we'd be at the neighbor's pool and be really hot and then we'd get out and we'd just run all over the yard we'd run all over the pavement to the basketball courts uh, nearby at the church parking lot nearby you'd walk on the chips at the playground and, and and in each of those environments you just have to you have to operate your feet in just such an interesting different way and you do that all the time when you're a kid i mean and then you you grow up and you put shoes on and you train one way. So, I think a lot of it comes down to exposing athletes in different environments with um, without shoes on. Uh, I like. Um, I also like uh, from just a general perspective. I think just sprinting in sprint spikes is huge. Just having a subtle negative uh, heel lift, kind of like a strength shoe, but not quite with a huge block. Just something you can actually sprint and jump off one leg in and get a little bit of feeling off two legs in. I think that. Uh, it does go a long way. It's underrated. Um, actually, if, if strength shoe, this is like my idea. Um, <laughs> don't steal it. I, it was here first. Intellectual property, but just like a strength shoe with a much smaller lift. Uh, I think it'd be kind of functional. But you know, someone's probably gonna tear their Achilles and then they're gonna get sued. So, uh, anyways. Um, but I think I think that type of thing uh, works pretty well. And then just high rep, high rep um, basic ankle jumps. Uh, you got to do high reps, like JB Marin has said on this podcast before. You, the ankles and the muscles of the lower leg have really strong muscles, and so and they're used to taking a beating, and to overload them, you really got to do a lot. Oh, I was going to say one other thing I like to do, and you've seen it on my YouTube channel, maybe if you check out my YouTube channel, which I haven't updated in a really long time, but uh, Russian ankle slant board stuff. I I've did that with my high jumpers a lot when I was coaching back at Wilmington College. I really liked it. And the more I go forward, the more I realize that ankle variability, mobility, and the corresponding strength in that mobility is really important for a variety of jumpers. You see that all the time with anyone who's really good and adept at jumping. Uh, Okay, next question. John Evans has uh, three questions. So thanks, John. And so here we go. First one, what's more important, uh, practicing dunking or plyometrics in preparation for dunking? So this is an Excellent question, and it's something that I wrote an article on not too long ago. It's something I've been thinking about for some time, uh, and the answer is just pra- is practicing dunking. Uh, but I think a lot of it revolves around well, how do we look at practice? If you were to look at it in terms of doing the same dunk over and over and over and over again, well, yeah, doing plyometrics might be more important because there's variability there, and you're you're working a different motor pattern, and maybe it even can go back to like that Rusin long jump study where. Uh, Two groups of long jumpers practiced and one group just jumped max distance every time they jumped as far as they possibly could. And then there was another group that uh, they they jumped a variety of distances. They tried to jump a different distance each time, not maximal, obviously, each time. And the group that jumped, jumped the different distances ended up jumping farther in the end in the final test. So that's kind of one thing I like with dunking is it's always a little bit different goal, a little bit different takeoff, a little bit different angle. And so there's, there's multiple factors on top of that too. I've, as I've grown as an athlete, like when I was in high school and in even college and I was playing like basketball or even volleyball, like somewhat frequently, uh, dunking was like approach running an approach and dunking was, was never a problem. It's very natural. But then once I got past, uh, that and I moved into my mid twenties and I was really just training, like I, I was really mostly just training and, and sprinting and lifting weights and doing ju- you know high jump and, and triple jump and doing plyometrics and when I would go to dunk and I was doing great in that stuff I mean I was a beast like when I was 26 I was a monster and all that stuff uh way better than I was at power to weight in any of those lifts compared to when I was in college and jumped seven feet in high jump uh which when I was 26 and I, I was so good at all this other stuff I only jumped uh, six nine I mean I did it really consistently maybe as more consistently than any other point in my life, but I just couldn't break through so much above that. And anyways, this just goes to say, it. When, when I was 26, though, I found that my dunking was just not as good as when I was younger, especially like one foot stuff. I mean, it was okay. It wasn't bad, but it was not, I just didn't have it like I did before. And the longer I go, uh, the more I realized that I, dunking is also very specific. There's this very specific rhythms associated with the takeoff, there's specific, I think, muscle, muscle lengths and muscle properties associated with the slam dunk takeoff. And yeah, I mean, there are similarities obviously between high and triple jump and that, but this just, it's, it's a little bit of a, there's, there's some specificity there. And I think just playing basketball and, and dunking is a very special workout, very underrated. And it's something that I always felt was very valuable in like the fall or the off season in designing collegiate programs, you know, as long as you're not getting hurt, but There's just there's something to it, and uh, I mean you'll even look at like some of the best dunkers out there. You got guys like uh, Jordan Kilgannon, who is as far as I know he doesn't do plyos, just lifts weights and dunks, and didn't even lift weights for a long time. And he gets up, and then you got guys, you got a ton of guys who just play ball and dunk. And playing ball is plyometric. Some people say playing basketball is the most plyometric workout you can get. So well maybe that's outside the question. Like what would happen if you never played basketball or didn't even do any of that stuff, and then only practice dunking? versus plyos I still would take the dunk practice I think just the rhythms that are associated with the dunk uh approach and takeoff at having a ball is is very specific and important to practice You're listening to the Just Fly Performance podcast brought to you by Simply Faster Um next question is what's the best way to prepare tendons for dunking and high jump I think it's it's fairly simple. Um, I think if you're just doing just jump circuits, you know, jump circuits for time, or playing basketball, which was the original jump circuit. Uh, and then I like I I'm old school a little bit. I like doing tempo. I like you know like for high jumpers or whatever, or, dun- or even dunking for an extent. I, I like doing five to six two hundreds. We a good workout that I used to like doing uh, was we my jumpers would run four two hundreds with the team, uh, like the sprinters who might be doing seven or eight. And then uh, they would break off and they would do uh, repeated uh, jump circuit stuff. So like repeated skips and gallops and jump circuit type things uh, for the remainder instead of, I mean, cause really like, I mean, what's the difference between four and six, two hundreds if you're a jumper, <laughs> you kind of get the point after four or five. It's not like you have to do, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. Um, so yeah, those are my favorite things. Uh, what's your opinion? Next question. What's your opinion of a more traditional block periodization for jump training, max strength, speed strength? Uh, strength speed speed strength and then jumping plyos so how do you mix all that together uh, i've never really i'm just not a fan i never it's just never worked out for me i don't know why i just don't not a fan of like the 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 typical like yuri verkashansky max strength block where where the emphasis is just maximal strength and then you go to your plyos and you see this big overshoot because there there's this almost romanticism about these this you, your performance degrades 10% during this overloaded concentration block, and then you're coming off of it, and your performance goes up 10% in the end, like a 20% swing. That's huge. That's like, that's like if your vertical was 30 inches, you're training until you're down to 27, which is lousy and kind of depressing, probably. And then you're gonna, you're gonna get up to 33. Um, I mean, yeah, maybe. I, I certainly could see. I, mean, I guess um, now that I say that, like, it's not inconceivable. But why? I just feel like it's just, you don't need to go down that far. I like, um, Neilio Mora had a good presentation that I watched and he was talking just about how his long jumpers and their studies, if you were good at the end of the year, you were good all year. Like it wasn't like this huge drop. And I, I think that, I mean, I'm sure it's certainly has worked for some people, but I just like, I like doing things that help athletes be faster and explosive all year. I just like to frame them differently. So I like to change environments I like to train change intensities of the movement. Say, like hill ten, hills more hill based stuff, uh, grass based stuff early on, and then start to get with harder surfaces and faster, more you know high magnitude stuff, depth jumps later on, and then uh, that's kind of how I roll. I'm not um, I don't like blocks as much. It just hasn't worked out quite as well for me. Um, something that Aaron Davis said recently I thought was cool too on the podcast. He said that all the greats have historically kind of done the max strength and hypertrophy all kind of together um i definitely don't like hypertrophy faces but you didn't really you didn't that wasn't something that was listed in the question Um but i think that um you know moving moving things together is good i i've almost moved um in in my own ideas on periodization i think a a better question maybe we should ask sometimes is are you going to go heavy to light or light to heavy i think or or you know like are you going to do basically doing like a bunch of really fast stuff early on in high volume, get the, get the train at the contact speed you're going to eventually hit and then infuse higher magnitude stuff later on versus kind of the other way around. I think that's almost a better question in many cases that we don't really think about. Don't hear people say or ask about it too much. Uh, Okay. Uh, Next question. Uh, David Kieran. Dave, thanks for the question, man. I feel like I should be asking you the questions. I'm very, very honored that you chimed in here. And so yeah, Dave asked, "What is the bridge between weight room work velocity and court apron velocity?" So, um, doing things in the weight room and then uh, what you're seeing, what you're seeing in velocity and speed uh, out in your events. So, apron being high jump apron, by the way, uh, for those of you guys who are not familiar with working your way around the track. So, uh, a lot of thoughts, uh, I guess, here, and and I think that uh, the more I've the more I've thought about the weight room in context of, of being a bridge. I've been a little more polarized than I used to be, and, and I say that in favor of like, if I'm going to do bridge type stuff, I'd rather do rather than be in the weight room. I'd rather do something that's out on the track, like a like a sled or or something with a weighted vest, or something with a small amount of resistance to it. Uh, I'd rather do something like that than to try to get something out of a clean uh, that or a step up that I don't think I don't think it was meant to do. Um, it's just, I mean, there's there's different sensory inputs for sure, uh, but to me the nature of the barbell, when you put a bar on your back, you now have, and I mean, it does it does require you know good posture, which I think is one of a, a great piece of it all. But there's also different muscular requirements to stabilize that bar with the high center of gravity. Uh, all that being said, I like I like keeping things pretty simple in the weight room. Um, my current thought on even say like high jumping or all that is. Uh, Olympic lifting and all that being the typical bridge, as, as we often talk about it, I like almost doing that more in the off-season. And then once athletes are getting in-season in, in high-performance land, uh, I like the idea of taking the coordination in the weight room, all that, like the more coordinative stuff in the weight room, or the, the coordination that might compete for neural drive, if that makes sense, away and just let the coordination all come from the track or the sport movement. And then keep things simple in the weight room and just do stuff like your half squats or your um you know hex bar deadlifts from pins or a, a step up of uh on a moderate to low box and and all that that stuff I think is really simple but I, I think it works and and I'm not uh again I guess what I'm trying to say is the more the the bridgy stuff in the weight room I, I tend to use more in the, the early off season and then I kind of phase that out Once athletes are going into high performance mode, so I hope that answers your question. (laughs) Again, thanks for asking that, Dave. Really appreciate having you uh, as part of this podcast. Uh, Then, last two questions: Uh, uh, Yost Juice has two. Uh, One, the value of plyometrics for sprinters, and does the direction of force matter? Uh, So, yeah, this is a great one, and I think that this is a it's like real common uh, question and. I think first you have to go into, well, what forces are important in sprinting? Um, You got the idea of like, and and typical, you know, uh, acceleration is horizontal, forces more, and then top end speed is more vertical. And I think that, yes, that's that's for the most part true, but in a top end speed, there is more horizontal going on than I think we tend to think there is. And uh, especially if you kind of look how the, the dynamics of the push in, in top-end sprinting. Uh, but in terms of uh, how we're going about plyometrics and direction of force, I uh, and, and Chris Corfus and I, we talked about this a little bit in, in the last episode we did, 52, on like bounding. And so um, maybe I'll just talk about bounding and hurdle hops really quick. I'm just going to cover those two. Uh, well, first I'll say for either acceleration or top-end, let's just say more top-end. Uh, I like doing that stuff early on as just a way to... Uh, max out, kind of max out the what you call the motor potential. so uh, so motor unit activation and elasticity you' really you're really improving that. and then later when you want to get fast, you're going to turn that into speed a little bit. Uh, and then uh, I guess the idea of like short multi jumps like a standing triple jump for acceleration and all that. And I think the Russians used to have this equation like if you standing triple jump this, you could be this fast. And well one, you got to be coordinated enough to do that standing triple jump. Some people kind of aren't. And then you gotta, you gotta treat that standing triple jump for what it is. It's, I mean, the, the mechanics of the triple jump are gonna be very different than good acceleration uh, in terms of where the foot is landing in respect to the hips, but the general like like motor qualities, like the explosive extensor and hip flexor, or hip extensor, hip flexor forces that are required to go really far are pretty similar. So I, I think it's just kind of give, give and take. Uh, if you have good technique, it's a good indicator. Um, in terms of training I think it's just something you want you can use early to improve motor potentials as long as you kind of know what you're doing with it I I think that taking it like really far and taking it really far in the season and and just always putting like a huge emphasis on on distances could be probably counterproductive on a high level Uh, and then like stuff like hurdle hops and all that um, I mean nothing's as specific as top end speed sprinting it's just such a I, I had a just jump mat or whatever and I've done biomechanic lab studies and all this and Man, the, like the lowest anyone gets in, in a just jump mat is, and, and I used to put in between hurdles and hurdle hops is like 0.16, 0.16 seconds. And top end speed, I'll anal- analyze tons of athletes in top end speed. And like the longest, like the worst anyone is, is maybe 0.12 or 0.13 on the ground. And so, and then obviously the faster athletes and those who are a little better are, are much less time on the ground. So you're, you're still not even really in the same ballpark, but in terms of just, I'd say general, again, just general building good length tension without uh, having excessive knee flexion. And that's really important that if you are doing those hurdle hops and those things that you really watch the knee flexion, once you're getting to more knee flexion than you would be in the loading phase of uh, sprinting, then you're not doing yourself a favor. And then just watching kind of uh, how you're uh, how you're pre-tensing and hitting the ground with pre-tension and that pre-tension I think can go a long way too for those athletes deficient in it and that's kind of a key is uh, athletes who are deficient at something are probably going to get a little more out of it I do also think that just the nature of those plyometric movements the, the multi-jumps and the bounding and hurdle hops they do offer a good potentiation or neural drive stimulus so you could use them uh, like even before like a big sprinting workout and you could get a little more out of it uh, from a neural as long as you respond well and you don't overdose the uh, potentiation prescription uh, last question by Yoast is could assisted jumps uh, possibly be of help with learning how to apply more force in the first 50 milliseconds of a ground contact or uh, on, in sprinting and what are possible neural stimulus or adaptive mechanisms by which this could prove effective. So, Yost, know, I'm not on, um, and this is me being the instinctual coach, I, I think of myself as kind of a, I, I like to solve problems and puzzles, and I like concepts, and I like parallel thinking. I'm not the best at um, uh, the whole spectrum of physiology and everything that's going on from a neural perspective, but I do know this, is that you, you get what you train for, and if you are doing assisted jumps and you're getting off the ground extremely fast, your body has to be ready to apply stiffness much faster, and so you may then be getting more neural drive in that early phase of muscle contraction. I do think physiologists have linked like it's almost like a, maybe a 30 millisecond window, like the earliest you could possibly start getting force and you can manipulate that but i don't know about if there's any studies there anyways i know that you do get what you train for so um yeah maybe so uh i i i know assisted jumps are helpful i like them i definitely uh if you want to jump higher i think they're good even if you are a what would you call it uh if you're a force and the athlete who needs more force rather than velocity i, I still think uh, they're good for uh just some rate of force and and a faster toe off so Uh, that's all I have to say about that I'm sorry I could be a little bit more useful but uh, so that does it uh, for the podcast today Uh, hope you guys enjoyed it Uh, the and also thanks again for everybody who contributed to uh, this this question and answer and I'm I'm glad I finally got through everyone's questions Uh, so that being the end uh, thanks for tuning in please visit our sponsor at simplyfaster.com suppliers of high-end training technology Uh, they they Sell a lot of amazing tools that will help you be a bit, you or your athletes uh, be better. So KBox, Freelap timing system, uh, they have um, even like not like not stuff with four-figure price tags. Uh, stuff like the PowerDot, stuff like EMS that makes a you know it can be a huge impactful uh, player in athletic development. And so I've been actually been using the PowerDot a lot. Really like it. Uh, really slick interface and uh, just getting a little more out of those fast switch fibers. So also, please don't hesitate to leave the podcast, a rating, or a view if you enjoyed it. And we'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.